I feel more than slightly apprehensive giving this talk in the background of a very theological theme. And so you will forgive me if my theological statements are untheological and if the rest is very different from what you may expect. First of all, may I make a totally non-theological statement about the Holy Spirit. When we speak of the Trinity, for people as primitive as I am, we can imagine that the old image given centuries ago still holds, and we can develop it on one point. Speak of the Trinity, try to understand the relation there is between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Some writers have said that we can compare God to the sun in the sky. In his, its mystery, unknowable is the sun as such. No one of us will ever be able to participate to the nature of the sun. But he becomes accessible to us in the light and in the warmth. The light is something which we perceive with our senses, by sight, and which reveals to us everything that surrounds us. We do not see the light as such, but it is in the light that things are revealed to us. The warmth of the sun is the way in which he pervades us and in which we can become participants to whatever degree is accessible to us to the life of God. Christ, the Word, is an objective revelation of God. The Spirit reaches us only within our experience. In the way in which the warmth of the sun pervades us and we become aware of it and through it of something which is of God. This is a non-theological introduction to the subject. As an illustration to this, I would like to give you an example of a contemporary of mine who had discovered his faith in God through an encounter with Christ. But he puzzled and puzzled about the Holy Spirit. He did not understand. And one day, he told me, he found himself on a bus. It was in Paris. They were rounded the theater of the Odeon, 
and he was saying to himself or to God but what does the Holy Spirit to us how can I know that I have had some sort of contact with the Spirit of God and all of a sudden he felt he was unexpected to himself filled with a love of the creation and a love of the human beings that were surrounding him in a way in which he had never known he could. And he realized that at that moment the Holy Spirit had come to him and made him partake in, to the extent to which he could, in his immaturity perhaps, to love divine. At that moment, he knew something about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit communicated himself to him by communicating to him something which could not be invented or forced even out of his human experience. The Holy Spirit comes to us quietly, at times unexpectedly, at times as a result of a long longing. Some of you may have read a book called The Little Prince by Saint-Exupéry. There is a passage in which the little prince meets a little fox and both the little prince and the little fox are attracted to one another but both are desperately shy. The little fox comes and sits a certain distance but whenever the boy makes a movement towards him he runs away. And one day, the little fox says to him something like, you know, we both long to come to one another, but we are shy and afraid. So when I come, don't make the slightest move. Look scouts, so that I may imagine that you have not noticed my presence. And not being afraid of being watched, I will come a little nearer and a little nearer. And every day I will come a little nearer than the day before. But don't turn to me because I will be afraid and run away. And then another thing he said, I long to come close to you. And so, let us fix a time when you will come. Because then, oh, a good hour before this time, I will know that you will be coming. I'll come myself and wait. And I will be filled with this expectation of the moment 
when you will appear. And then you will sit down and as I said, pay no attention to me and allow me to come nearer and nearer and nearer. This image of the little fox is something that to me resembles very much the way in which we relate to the Holy Spirit. Christ comes to us proclaiming the truth. He is the truth. He is the one who is. He is a revelation, an unveiling. The Holy Spirit in that sense is not a revelation. He is the one who makes the revelation possible by making us commune with what is the essence of this revelation, the closeness and the knowledge of God. And if we turn to what we hear in the Gospel about the Holy Spirit, I would like to att attract your attention first to one passage, a word rather than a passage we should repeat time and again in our prayer. The Comforter. The Comforter is the English translation of the word, and when you look at the various languages in which it was translated from the original, I think we can see a variety of facets in the event. First of all, the Holy Spirit, whom the Lord Jesus Christ sends us, is the one who consoles us from our loss of Christ. I speak of the loss of Christ because each of us believes in Christ. Each of us has had an experience of his closeness, of his presence. Each of us has had, through his teaching, an experience which he conveys to us in word and in person. But with the crucifixion, the death of Christ, the resurrection, the ascension, he is not present as he was present to his disciples, and he is not present in the way in which he will be present to us when all things will be fulfilled. You remember probably the words of St. Paul when he says, as long as I am in the flesh, I am separated from Christ. And yet, Christ is my life. And we are all, to a lesser degree than Paul was, of course, in the same kind of situation. On one hand, Christ is our life. On the other hand, we are still separated from him. We all long to be with him, but we cannot go beyond a certain point of closeness. And St. Paul points it out when he says, 
that as long as I live in the flesh, I'm separated from Christ. And he longs for death to come, not as an end of his earthly life, but as a moment when a veil will be torn apart, and as he puts it, he will know as he is known. He will see face to face what he can see yet only as shadows and images mirrored. The Holy Spirit reveals to us is our consoler in the sense that as Christ has promised that he will send him to us, he comes to us. And he gives us an incipient participation in a closeness of communion with Christ and through Christ, in Christ, with the Father. So, that this is our first experience. His closeness to us consoles us from the fact that we long to meet Christ face to face, to commune with the Father in a way unutterable to us. But the word goes beyond this. He is not only the one who comforts us. He is the one who gives us strength, strength to live in this orphaned situation in which on the one hand we belong to God wholeheartedly, sincerely, heroically at times, and at the same time live in a world that is fallen apart from God and with which we have a function to fulfill. He is the one who gives us strength to live in a world which at times denies everything we long for, stands between us and our fulfillment by temptation, by beguilement. At the same time, there is a third meaning in the word. He is not only the consoler, he is not only the one who gives us strength to face life. In the face, and yet in a partial absence of Christ, he is the one who gives us the exalting joy of being with Christ already in this world. Because although our communion with Christ is imperfect, although it is not all-embracing, as though we do not know him as he knows us, we know him, and this is a miracle which we cannot 
appreciate if we were born, as it were, in a believing family, and if we have been given our faith together with our birth, as it were. But those of us who were unbelievers, the millions who believed not and who have discovered, know the exalting joy of this discovery of God in Christ and through him of the fatherhood of God's own Father. So that in the Holy Spirit we have consolation because we are orphans. We are given strength because orphans or not we are sent into this world to conquer it for God. And in the process, at moments, we are giving a sense of incredible closeness. And we can exult and rejoice in the way in which the young man whom I mentioned in the beginning, having been filled in an unutterable manner, with a love he did not know could exist, not only for humanity, not only for every concrete human person, but for the whole of creation. We are told by Christ that he will send the Spirit to us who lead us into all truth. All truth is not an intellectual situation. It is not a knowledge of the mind. It's an experiential knowledge. The truth, in Russian, istina, is what is. I am he who is. And the knowledge of the truth can be possessed only in communion with him who is. In a strange way, we have lost through the centuries this certainty that that is what the truth is. It is God himself. It is the absolute reality Pavel Floriansky, speak of the truth, says, Istina ete yestina. The truth is what is. I am. And strangely enough, because we have moved from this existential experience knowledge of the truth to an intellectual level we feel that we must fight for the truth and defend it forgetting that the truth cannot be destroyed by any created power the Greek word aletheia means what 
cannot be washed away, annihilated even by the waters of the river of oblivion. Nothing can do it. And if we continue to dwell on words, we could remember that the word verity, veritas, wahrheit, derived from a Latin word which means to defend, not to be defended. The truth can defend us against everything and it does not need us to defend it. This is a very important point with regard to our mission in the world because it means that we are sent to proclaim it and to reveal it but not to defend it in argument. We cannot defend the truth by argument. We can present another facet of things which people can accept or not and we cannot always defend it in the way in which it should be defended. I remember when I was young and began to do youth work, my father saying to me, proclaim the truth and be to people a vision of it, however dim. But do not try to convert anyone by argument. Because if you prove to be more intelligent, more well-read than another person, you will be able to defeat the other person, but you will not have changed his life. And I remember an occasion, a case, in the comparatively recent history of the Russian church, in Stalin's time, a young man called Yevgraf Duluman, who was a student at university, was looking for digs. And he found a room in the house of a local parish priest. The man was mature, aging, with a deep and tragic experience of life, of the beginnings of the revolution and of the persecution that followed. And the young man was full of his atheistic convictions. And he decided to convert this priest to what he believed to be the truth. And they engaged in conversations and discussions. The priest was an old and wise man. He did not, did not argue point by point. He unfolded between, before this young man the truth as he knew it. But this young man was not mature enough 
to go through the experience that was offered him. And he made it into an intellectual world outlook that defeated, annihilated completely his, his atheistic vision. And having been dialectically defeated, he embraced the Christian faith, asked for baptism, went to study theology in Zagorsk, was brilliant as a student, was ordained a deacon and a priest, and was sent to Samara, I think, to a parish. It was expected that he would be a brilliant missionary, taking into account the way in which he had moved from refined, deep atheism into a powerful sense of Christianity. But when he was in the parish, this young man discovered in the celebration of the liturgy, in the sacraments, in his pastoral work, that he could present the Christian truth in words, but he did not believe it at all in his inner self. And after a while, he renounced the church and became an active agent of atheistic propaganda. This example I give you to underline the fact that it is not in the, refined, uh, the refinement of argument in arguses that when convey one's faith. In the course of the whole history of Christianity, you meet people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and whose life, whose person, their words in their simplicity reached others hit them at the very core of their being and brought to life a knowledge of the divine that was dormant. It has been for many as though the knowledge of God was like Lazarus, dead, lying in his grave, and who suddenly heard a voice saying, Lazarus, come out. And the knowledge of God, an experience that was conveyed by having heard God speak to him, made all the difference. And so, when we speak of the Holy Spirit as being the spirit of truth, it is not the spirit of formal theological discourse or of any formal thing 
divorced from the inner experience unless it is sustained by this inner experience it may be convincing argument it would not be a power that can transfigure the life of another person we are sent into the world to proclaim Christ but we are not sent into the world to argue about him in 1943 C.S. Lewis gave a series of addresses on English wireless and in one of them he asks what is the difference between the believer that has become alive in God and any other human and he said the difference can be compared to that there is between a statue and a living person a statue may be of supreme beauty but it is nothing but stone or wood it can be looked at and admired it can send us a message of beauty but not of communion this beauty will be communion with something earthly created but not beyond something must happen that will make it of the beyond a human being may be infinitely less beautiful than a statue but it is alive and C.S. Lewis says when someone meets one of those statues that have become a living person he should stop and say look this statue has come to life and this is a challenge to each of us because we may be satisfactory statues but are we the kind of people whom others meet look at and discover that there is life there and not only a shape it's very important for us to realize that our message to the world is not a world outlook it's a revelation of the presence of the Holy Spirit and of Christ the church is a mysterious body because the church is the presence in the midst of the fallen world of the fullness of the divine presence the first member of the church is he whom St. Paul calls the man Jesus Christ he is one of 
us apart from being one, if I may put it that way, one of them. He's not only one of the Trinity, he's one of the humanity. And looking at him, we can see what it means to be both totally men, human, and totally and perfectly divine. But since the ascension and the Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has indwelt the Church totally, filled it with His presence. And in the Spirit and in Christ, the whole Trinity is present in the Church. Are we Christians, Orthodox Christians, aware of this? Or is the Church a human body that looks Godward, who believes in God, who has evolved a very elaborate theology, but whose members are not limbs of Christ. As Father Sergei Bulgakov puts it, an extension of the Incarnation. Are we an extension of the Incarnation? Does anyone meeting us stop one minute and say, in this person there is something I have never met before. Here is a human shape, but there is something beyond it. I think I have mentioned last year a personal example, which I will dare mention again. I came once to the parish that became, to the church that became my parish for years in Paris. I aimed at being present at the vigil, but for one reason or another, I was late. The service was over. It had taken place in a, an underground garage that led to the street <clears throat> through a, a wooden staircase. I entered and I saw that everything was over. Only there was a man coming up the stairs. It was a monk in monastic garb. And when I looked at him, I felt that I had never in my life met such total inwardness, such serenity, such peace and depth. I did not know who he was. I came up to him and said, I do not know who you are, but would you become my spiritual father? This is a sort of central experience I had of a person in whom I saw something 
I had never seen to that extent, to a lesser extent indeed, but not to that extent. This total inwardness in the presence, in an abiding presence of God, the Spirit at work, and the incarnation in Him. And years later, I received a little note from him saying, I have experienced the mystery of contemplative silence. I cannot die. And three days later, he died. This to me was an example of what a Christian can be. He was not impressive in every respect. He was not a man of superior education or of an outward holiness. But in him, I could see the incarnation and the presence of the Spirit. And when we look around, do we realize in what kind of world we live? Bishop Basil must have talked to you about <clears throat> the presence of the Holy Spirit in the created world. But at the moment of creation, the Holy Spirit was hovering on the newly created world. This newly created world, in translation, is called the chaos. And when we think of chaos nowadays, we think of destruction. The chaos that follows the bombing of Dresden. But the chaos is something much more essential and deep. The chaos is the sum total of all the existing possibilities that have not yet found a shape and blossomed out. The Holy Spirit was breathing over the chaos, with, over all the possibilities of a world that had been called into being and had no shape yet. And by breathing over this chaos, the Holy Spirit was bringing to life all its possibilities and everything that was hidden as the possible began to emerge as reality as you can see in the beginning of Genesis. But God did not force the shapes. He elicited the possibility for the creation to become itself more and more, to expand in depth and in width and in every respect. Things changed with the fall. But what had been given first was never taken away. The created world is still that world which God has created. And if it is distorted, 
It is not because it has turned away from God. It is because its guide, man, has turned away from God, lost its way, and has proved incapable of helping this chaos becoming the perfect cosmos, beauty in form and line and life. So that the world in which we live is a world which in itself is pure of stain, except for the stain which we put on it and free from everything except the distortion which we have created in it. And when we look at the surrounding world, we must be aware that everything which is monstrous, frightening, ugly, distorted in it, is our doing to apply to the generality a phrase which was spoken in a particular situation, one of the fathers says, we must remember that what we call the sins of the flesh are the sins which the spirit inflicts upon the flesh. The flesh is pure. We make it a victim of sin. Our body says, I'm hungry. Our imagination says, I want to delight in such and such foods. The natural situation of the created world is that of a victim of the human fall, of our being separated from God, from our being unable to restore even in a small patch of land the purity and the wholeness and the harmony that belongs to it by right. That we must remember. With what veneration we must look at the cosmos and everything which is the material world around us. And what broken heartedness we must feel when we see distorted, broken, ugly, monstrous at times. Again, when we turn to God, God's revelation and the creation of men, the whole God breathes his own breath into men, that is, the original human, the anthropos, the chalevyak. And men, the total man, has remained filled with the spirit of God. And we must remember this. It is not our Christian or Orthodox privilege to be such. All 
human beings are such. Sinful, yes, but basically such. And so when we look around at all human beings, we have no right to see in the ones the good, in the other ones the evil. We must see victims of the human fall in the ones and victory of Christ in the Spirit in the others. Saints are examples of this victory. In them, to the extent to which it is possible in a world which is not yet come to the parousia, to its end in Christ's victory, we find incipiently or still surviving true humanity. And this we must remember when we deal with whomever we deal with. Some people are evil in inverted commas. Yes, but why are they? Have we given them newness of life by being a revelation of Christ and a gift of the Holy Spirit? And again, it is easy, perhaps at times, to be compassionate for the person in error, but how easily we condemn the error from the height of what we imagine to be the truth as we know it. I have paid some attention in the course of the last 70 years or so to the beliefs of people, of men, to the religions of the world. And what strikes me more and more is that however different they are from the faiths of Christianity, they are all a distortion of the truth, but not a straight lie against it, except for some bodies who have chosen to be servants of Satan and not servants of Christ. I would like to keep you a little longer than I intended. My 45 minutes are just over. If you allow me 10 more minutes, I will let you free. Many years ago, I had a conversation with Vladimir Lossky about Oriental religions. He was absolutely in denial of any knowledge, any true knowledge of God in them. I did not dare argue with a theologian of such magnitude. But 
what courage could not achieve, I thought cunning might. So as we lived across the street from one another, I went home and copied from the Upanishads, the most ancient Indian writings, eight passages, came back to Lossky and said, Vladimir Nikolaevich, I have been reading the fathers and I always take down the passages which strike me particularly. I always put down the name of the author, but alas, in these eight quotations, I cannot find the author's name. Could you identify them for me? He looked and said, oh yes. And within a minute and a half, he had put eight names of the greatest fathers of the church under the quotations of the Upanishad. And then Kani revealed itself in false humility. And I said to him, I'm afraid I have deceived you. This is from the Upanishad. And he looked at me and said, really? Then I must read them. And that was a beginning for a change of mind in him with regard to other um, religious statements. Many years ago, in the 1962, I was part of the first Russian delegation to the World Council of Churches in Delhi. Together with a uh, number of us, among a number of us, there was a man called Father Jan Wendland, who later became a bishop in America and in Germany. He had been a secret priest in Siberia while doing geological research during the Stalin period. And we decided to go to a pagan place of worship to see and to try to understand. We arrived there at the door we had to take our shoes off, which we obligingly did, and were about to leave them there when the warden came up to us and said, Oh no, sir, you do not leave your shoes here. They are new and good. They would be stolen. I'll put them into my office. So our shoes went into the office, and we uh, went into the place of worship. It was a round place of worship, divided in 10 or 12 sections, and in each of them there was what we would call a pagan denomination worshipping in its own way. We sat one after the other in the 12, 10 or 12 compartments at the back, using our rosary and praying the Jesus prayer and trying to commune with God and see whether we commune with the people. And we both came out of it with the certainty that whatever they called their God, whether it was a God elephant or the God monkey or another, they prayed to the only one God there was. 
and we had communed in prayer with them all, in spite of the fact that on the surface they had been praying pagan prayers to idols. That also made me think. And I will end your torment by one more thing. What I have said should make us much more understanding and attentive to our attitude to unbelievers, not those who are empty of belief, but those who are actively godless. And I will give you one example which some of you must have heard from me because I always repeat myself. The example is this. I was coming down the steps of the Hotel Ukraina a number of years ago. I wore my cassock as I always do. A young man came up to me and said, I am an officer of the Soviet Army. You are, I presume, a believer dressed as you are. I said, yes. Well, I am an unbeliever, Bezbozhnik. I'm godless. I said, that's your loss. He said, and why should I turn to God? What have I got in common with him? I said, do you believe in anything at all? Yes, he said. I believe in men and in humanity. I said, in that, you and God share the same face. Start at that point. And I think more often than we do, we should be aware that there is no one who lives without a face, without believing in something. And more often than not, we may discover that God believes in the same, only better, deeper, more perfectly, but that this person who feels that there is nothing between God and him have something in common with him. And at this point, we may remember this passage of the Gospel in which Christ says to Nicodemus, the Spirit blows where it chooses, and no one knows where it comes from and where it goes. And we must be infinitely reverent when we look at the world that surrounds us, which we have distorted and which suffers like a under the result of human sin and remains pure, so pure that God could become man and put on flesh, a flesh he inherited from not only the personal saintliness of the Mother of God, but from the fact that she was the heir of all the saintliness of thousands of years of human life and history.
we must remember that all humans are possessed of this breath of life which is God's breath and God's life however distorted it may be we must remember that the spirit blows where he chooses and without this precondition of the way in which the world mankind relate to God no one no one of us and no one in the world could discover God it is a spirit that reaches us and which kills in us life eternal so when we speak of being sent into the world we must remember that we are unworthy messengers of a message that may be received by the created world around us and by the humankind around us better than we are capable of proclaiming it how often it happens that words of truth are said that do not reach the congregation that is there but reach someone who by accident or by an act of divine providence has entered the church we must remember that and go into the world not to proclaim a, a theoretical theology of the mind but grow into the life of Christ open ourselves to the action of the Holy Spirit believe that the Holy Spirit is active in the created world which is dear to God dear to God because the body of Christ belongs to this created world through the incarnation and mankind everyone at this point I will end my talk and apologize for having spoken at least 10 minutes more than I am allowed to center not to that emptiness which is our center so often but to a center where God is active it can be achieved by learning to listen and learning to look you know all of you quite certainly as I do that so often when someone talks to us we listen with one ear but we spend all the time he speaks to us at times from the depth of his life preparing our reply you all know probably as I do that so often we look not in order to see what is objectively there but what we want to see 
because what is objectively there in speech or in form, in shape, could be a challenge to us and we are afraid of it. So this is a kind of preparation. Learn to be silent inwardly, not in words only, and to listen, to listen with all our being. Some of us may know what it means to a certain extent if we have found ourselves in a situation that provokes fear in us. Then we do not listen to our thoughts, to our emotions. We do not rehearse our past or look into our future. We are all ears because we would like to perceive before the danger is upon us. Those of us who have been in the world know that from experience very well. You move listening, you move looking, and you move in deep inward silence and immobility to be able to receive any message, like a, like a musical string well-tuned, that is there, ready to be touched and, and, to, and, and to sound. There is another uh, step we can take, of course, apart from learning to be silent, because to be silent in the void is not something which is always possible. I think it is not possible at all most of the time. But we can be silent everything by concentrating our attention at best on God. Or if we cannot do that, on something which is worthy of God in us, which has the power to collect into one all our feelings. When we love someone with all our being, with our heart, with our mind, with our human body, and I'm not speaking of lust, I'm speaking of the total being, and we want to make silent the idle thoughts, we can call a name. And this name eliminates every other names. In the same way, we can learn to make of the name of Jesus a name that will collect together all that is alive, all that is meaningful, all that is deep in us, and eliminate the rest. This is the point of the Jesus prayer. Jesus Christ does not need here 200, 300, 3,000, 10,000 uh, times, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me a sinner. Because he knows perfectly well that we are a sinner. We know, he knows perfectly well that we need mercy. And he has mercy to offer us in, in pails and um, floods. But we must concentrate on it. And 
As Father Lev Gillet insisted in, uh, more than once and has written about it, the name of Jesus should be such that when we hear it, all her inner self comes to life in emotion, if you want to, of love, of veneration, of adoration that eliminates any other thought. That is the point of learning the Jesus prayer. Not of training ourselves to repeat it endlessly, but to give a possibility for us to say Jesus, and that's the end. We need the rest as a preparation, because we are not capable of it. But ideally, the name should be enough, should suffice. And then the inwardness can be born and sustained for a while. It may be a long while or a short while. It may be minutes. At moments of terror, we can turn to say, Gospody, Lord, Jesus, whatever we say to express him and concentrate on this because the terror from outside pushes out everything except our response. And our response, if it is grafted on God, create this inwardness. And when we have learned that, we may learn to do it without this outward prompting of terror or of need. In a moment of stillness, of peace, in an indifferent moment, turn to God and be with him. Saying the name, or the whole prayer, or being totally silent, and feel within us the action of the Holy Spirit and the presence or the communion we have or can have with the Lord Jesus Christ. I think this is what I meant by inwardness. Sorry. Would you say it's a gift of the Spirit then? That you can't just do it on your own. I mean, it's not just a matter of effort only. All this is a gift of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is not simply um, giving something to the one and not to the other. There must be a receptacle, there must be someone who receives. He may force his way at times, as he has, uh, it has happened when St. Paul met Christ or on, uh, with other saints, when God broke in. But basically, it is that. Other questions? Perhaps I'll ask for myself. Um, <laughs> I, uh, as we hear you speak, and uh, not only the questions and answers now, but earlier in, the, in your talk, um, it did occur to me that for many of us, um, we are constantly faced with the difficulty of having to face the fact 
fact that we are not really extensions of the incarnation. That we know this, how do we deal with it? In a way, whether we know it or not, we are an extension of the Incarnation. Because we are partakers of the same humanity that was Christ. And Christ was God become man, God revealed to us in the flesh. In that sense, in our physical humanity, we are an extension of the Incarnation. Our physical humanity, I don't know whether theologians will agree with that, and I look with fear uh, to the more learned, but in our physical humanity we participate in the physical humanity of Christ, and this physical humanity is pure of stain. We stain it, we distort it. And that is, I believe, a very important thing for us to remember. But we all are, in that sense, an extension of the Incarnation. But on the other hand, to the extent to which, and in the way in which, we believe in God, uh, we, being baptized, we are grafted in Christ in a way even deeper than the original act of creation uh, is. Um, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm too tired, I'm sorry, I can't continue. I do apologize. Perhaps is it an act of God to save you from more? <laughs> 